This week's episode is sponsored by, yeah, it's still nobody. Look, I, you know, some weeks I tell you about somebody who I think, some company that ought to be sponsoring the podcast. And sometimes I tell you about somebody who really is a person who's really been incredibly supportive of the work that we're doing here. This week, I, I kind of feel like I got to go out of my way to tell you who's not sponsoring the podcast and who is most definitely not sponsoring me. And that is the University of Southern California. And I tell you that not because I'm mad at USC, but because so many people think that because I, I'm the humanist chaplain at USC, that I get paid by USC. And I sure don't. That university has more money than you can shake a stick at, but none of it comes my way. And they kind of can't because like, they don't pay. I mean, they pay the dean of religious life to oversee all the chaplains and all the campus ministers. But like the Jewish community pays the rabbis at the Hillel House. And the Catholic community pays the priests and the staff at the Caruso Catholic Center and buys them like a gajillion dollar building. And, you know, all the evangelical campus ministers are supported by that community. The, the Muslim campus minister is supported by the Islamic community. And, and, and so what that means is I work for the Humanist Chaplaincy at USC, which is this little nonprofit organization that you can find at bartcampolo.org. And what I'm counting on is that at some point, some, some secular folks look at this and go like, hey, that is a great idea to put one of our people on the campus to inspire students to, to, to climb into making the most of their lives by building loving relationships and, and, by, and by fighting for social justice and by cultivating a sense of wonder and teaching those students how to create communities to support and nurture that stuff. Because then when they graduate, they'll go and launch these communities all over the world. That's how we'll build a movement. And so like, I'm hoping that somebody out there gets it. I know that when my students graduate and they start making money, they'll support it because it's transformed some of their lives and they say, go again, we want to see that great stuff happen for other people. We want to see a community like that work for them, work for new students the way it worked for us. But until they start supporting me, man, it's up to you. You know, you should check out barcampolo.org and see if you want to get involved. You're listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. I'm excited about this week's show because you're going to hear a conversation between me and Ann Newman. And Ann Newman is this NYU journalist and professor who wrote this kind of very cool book called The Good Death, An Exploration of Dying in America. And you may go like, that does not sound like a cool book. That sounds like a, a, a downer book. But in a weird way, it's not. It's this like unflinching look at what really happens, you know, in the medical establishment and in hospitals and hospices and in people's homes because we have not had a meaningful conversation about death in America and we're just sort of letting it go. And I'm not going to tell you about it because Anne and I have this kind of very cool conversation about it. What I will tell you is she came to USC. I heard her speak. I asked her a question after her lecture. She was so nice to me that I, I sort of timidly went up to her afterwards and said, well, you wouldn't want to come on my podcast. And she was like, I would love to come on your podcast. And the conversation you're going to hear is a edited version. We ended up talking for like two hours. I, I totally forgot it was a podcast because I just found her fascinating. I'm not going to tell you all about the conversation. All I'm going to tell you is I loved it. I think you'll love it. So let's get on with it. All right. Ready, set. Yeah, here we go. 
when I saw you at USC and I heard you speaking, my, my first thought was that I just wanted to talk with you. I'm, I'm flattered and I feel the same way. And the first question I would say is I said, like, I read your book and everything, but like back me all the way up. <laughs> Give me your like five minute biography. Like, where were you born? Where do you come from? Um, I was born a 10th generation Mennonite in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And so my family has been in this part of the world in the same few square miles for a really long time. But that 10th generation thing is kind of a fudge because my dad never joined the church and instead ended up uh, getting my mother pregnant in the mid 1960s, late 1960s. And they got married and had a second child and she uh, went out of the picture and I was raised by my father. Um, wait, wait, so, the mother went out of the picture. Yes. My father received custody. And, um, oh. and so I only met my mother a few times in my adult life. Um, they separated when I was about six. You were, you're, you're from the Mennonites, but you were not raised as a Mennonite. Well, I spent much of my time because my dad was a single father. I spent much of my time with my grandparents who were Mennonite. Um, my grandmother wore a covering her whole life and no jewelry and no pants and, and on down. Um, so I spent a lot of time in the church, but I never joined the Mennonite church. And I mean, Lancaster is still home for me. It's, uh, where I go as soon as often as I can. My sister lives in the home that I grew up in. Um, my family's all in the general area. Now, you, know, you won't know this about me, but like I was raised in Philadelphia. Uh-huh. And um, what's funny is like as a young, when I was growing up, my dad's an, a big shot evangelical preacher. <laughs> who, who, wait, then, wait, wait, wait. Tell me his first name. Tony. No. Yes. Of course you know him. Of course you know him. Because no, your dad is Tony Campolo. Yes. How many, no, like how many Campolos did you think there were? I don't know. I just didn't put it together. Oh yeah. So like, believe me, I know the Mennonites of Lancaster County. Oh, you sure do. And they know me. No kidding. Yeah. Yeah. And like, cause he was huge among the Mennonites. And then when I became an evangelical minister and speaker myself, I became like hugely popular among Mennonites because I think they like us Campos because like we move when we talk and they're like, that's such a novelty. Um, <laughs> that's, that's derogatory, but oh, okay. close. But, but... Oh, I know. Can, like my favorite experience would be, I would speak at a Mennonite church and I would, I would do everything I could, like my whole shtick. And then when it'd be over with people would come up to me afterwards and somebody would say to me, that you were hilarious. That was the funniest thing I've ever heard. And I'm thinking, then why did nobody laugh? The Anabaptists are not a charismatic people. No, no. But they're, but, but boy, if you need something fixed or built, or if you need like, a, a, you know, to feed a thousand people at an orphanage, get you some Mennonites. Totally. Yeah. No. Um, um, that's very true. I still can't get over the fact that you're Tony. This is the perfect. I want to start all over. This is terrible. <laughs> no, I have, this is the perfect opportunity because I have had this story in my head forever. And I don't know if it comes out of my born again days, but I have in my mind attributed it to your father and I'm going to mess it up terribly. Oh, believe me, I'm sure I know the story. Just give me the first line. He's in bed and he wakes up and the devil's at the foot of the bed. And, um, and instead of being shocked and scared, he says, Oh, it's you and goes back to sleep. And that is because he is safe 
in the love of Christ and need not be afraid of the devil. The devil has no power. I believe that must have been William James or Billy Graham, but I doubt that was my dad. Okay. Because my dad does wake up in the middle of the night. <laughs> With the devil like, in his It's not like that. <laughs> <laughs> so wait, what is your relationship with your dad now? Oh my gosh. No, we're not going to do that. No, here's the deal. Come okay. on. Okay. I'll tell you just quickly because okay. there's a documentary film coming out about this subject <gasps> and no lie. Um, and my dad and I just wrote a book about this subject that will come out later. And so I just can't screw it all up. Well, this is awesome. But you're, you're, I, I guess my real question was, are, are you still pals? Oh, you too? Yeah. 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 Okay. I talked to him this morning before I called you. Um, okay. the rest is kind of this long story of how I end up being the humanist chaplain here at USC. Right. And of course for my dad, when I, when I sit him and my mom down and tell them this, it's really traumatic, um, on so many levels. And yet you know, my dad's first question, my mom's first question is, what are you going to do now? And I said, well, you know, I'm going to try to, you know, help young people learn to find meaning by loving other people and fighting for social justice. And they go like, oh, that's terrible. We're so ashamed. You know, like, what, you know, like oh, you have the same values. And I'm like, yeah, I have the same values. And I'm going to stay married to my wife and we still love you. And, you know, and, and so on some level, everything changed and on another level, nothing changed. And I think that when they realized that nothing of substance was changing on one level, they were okay with me. Although it's mm. still, although it is still really hard for them sometimes. I'm sure. Uh, but you're getting at the heart of something that really is important to me. And I think, um, in some ways foundational to my work. So I'm going to say this and maybe it'll make sense and we'll, we'll be on the same plain page morality for the longest time, particularly in this country has derived from a particular kind of Christianity. And that has infused and shaped our laws, our social understanding, our ethics, and our morality. And as we have moved away from our relationships to traditional family and also from uh, legacy religions, the legacy denominations, we have grappled again and again with what our moral touchstone should be. And my feeling is that we don't have to, we don't have to use those same old touchstones. We can still be good to our human neighbors. You know, we can still be good people with the same values and, um, do what's right without those moral signifiers, those moral sources. But here's the thing. I mean, I, I agree with you, but the weird thing that I'm learning is, is that Christian morality, you know, Mennonite morality, if you will, mm -hmm is grounded in a narrative. It's grounded in a worldview that says, this is where we come from. This is where we're going. This is what happens when you die. This is why you should be a good person. And this is what goodness is. And in some level, like if you take away the narrative and you say, but you can be a good person without that narrative, but you're, <laughs> you're going to need always, a new narrative. You're going to need a new narrative. Yes. In some ways. Yes. But that is really the, the story of human life. I mean, we're finding, um, we're finding those narratives in large and small ways. And I think I can find it when I'm talking to Bill Coleman, who's this rapist in prison in Connecticut in this chapter of the book where I'm talking about force feeding. And Bill's story is also a story of morality. 
Um, you know, the story of Bobby Schindler, who's the uh, leader of the Terry Schindler Shivo Life and Hope Network. Her Catholic family very strongly supporting um, conservative values in medical ethics. Right, and keeping um, her alive at all costs. Quote, unquote, alive. Yeah, yes. right, right, right. You know, I, I think we can find that narrative in the stories of the people around us, um, in the story of human beings. Um, but I completely agree with you. Um, the narrative um, is the strength. And I think that's why writing and writing people's stories is so important to me. Well, And, and one of the reasons why I was really into your subject, this book is The Good Death, an exploration of dying in America. And one of the things that I was interested in is my, re my morality is based, it is not in spite of the fact that I don't believe in God or eternal life. It is because I don't believe in eternal life that I am obsessed with pursuing goodness. Like, yes, it's still rooted in this narrative. Like, I have a sense of where we come from you know, mm -hmm. evolution and stardust and all of that. And I have a sense of what happens after I die, which mm -hmm. is that my energy and matter get recycled, but I don't. Um, and that's what drives me. And so, you know, even a secular morality is still rooted in some kind of narrative. Absolutely. No, absolutely. And I think that's the way that we perceive ourselves as human beings. It's always the story for us, um, uh, for all of us. And your, your um, book is like full. It's, it's, it's a storybook. It's all stories. Absolutely. Because I could not find a more um, intriguing, I hope intriguing, uh, compelling, I hope compelling way to address the larger ethical questions that uh, reside in that space between religion and medicine. Okay. So I'm still going to back you up though. It was your father's side of the family, which was this dominant force. And your dad's parents were, they were simple Mennonites. Yes. I spent a lot of time with my grandparents and attended the Lancaster Mennonite church and, um, and became born again in uh, junior high, I believe. And so all that was well and good until I got to college. Um, so even, and, even in high school, so you were little, little miss youth group in high school. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and, and I, even when I got to college, I was like a young Republican and, and what did you study? I studied English. Were you planning to be, like, you were still in your Christian moment. Like what were you planning on doing? I was going to be a, a writer like Joni Erickson Tata. I don't think she was, <laughs> I don't think she was Erickson Tata. I mean, I didn't want the disability to go no, along no. with it, but I thought, um, I thought, yeah, I'm going to, I'm going to go write beautiful, inspiring things. Yeah. Um, and then I found sex and, and it was all over there. Um, I, I was like, Oh, wait a minute. This is my body. And this is, Oh, this is all finite. So for me, my sex was the, the was the entryway to like this understanding of like, Oh, I'm right here. Yeah, exactly. This, Oh, this body, this thing right here, I get it. So of course, where would I go after that with this intense focus on the body? I went through Catholic catechism in college. What? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Like you fell off the evangelical bandwagon and then did you decide to like 
come back to Jesus through, through the Catholic church? No, I wanted to, I, there was something compelling to me about the ritual and the body that the Catholic church offered me, uh, in that period in my life. And I was baptized in the Catholic church, I think in 91. But did, did you not, were you not aware that they too would tell you not to have sex? Uh, no, it was a little different. They seemed strangely liberal to me. Uh, yeah, I know. Um, the drinking Catholics, the, the happy Catholics, the Catholics with incense and colored smells and bells glass smells and bells. Exactly. Yeah. No, they were really decadent. And, and, and you go serious Catholic. No, 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 no. I think it's stuck for stuck. me. I mean, I still go on particular holidays. The let's, let's get this straight. I'm not a believer. Yeah. You're a secular Catholic. Yeah. Like a secular Jew. I mean, I, I just, exactly. I just got back from speaking at a secular Jewish synagogue in Cincinnati and you know, like these folks are absolutely, there's not a supernatural bone in any of their bodies, but they're culturally Jewish. And you're, yeah. so, so then you're in college at some point you figure out like, I'm good at writing or I want to be a writer. I always wanted to be a writer. I, I have people writing to me now and saying, uh, you know, I'm a senior in high school. I'm a senior in college. How did you start your journalism career. <laughs> and I said, well, it's a long story, but shorthand is read everything you can get your hands on and live richly. Just try everything twice, do it all because and, and that did, richness will come into your writing. Sure. And did you live richly in those two decades? Oh, so richly. I, it's, it's hard to find something I haven't done. I've waitressed. I, had a furniture store in California. I spent a lot of time rock climbing in Joshua tree or surfing Rincon or, you know, um, I worked for Michael Milken's global Institute. I worked for investors, business daily newspaper. I worked for the street.com in New York. On oh, yeah. No, no, it totally and, makes I, sense. Like yeah. you, you, on don't, and on. you don't come from people like we're not the kind of people that write books, but we're the kind of people that do all that stuff. Um, no, my grandmother, I think she's only, a, she, before she died, she had only ever been to probably three U S states. Yeah. That's what I mean. Like, so when you tell me, like, I didn't think I could be a writer because of uh, where I come from, I'm going like, but you thought you could do all this other stuff. Oh yeah. But so a lot of that's the body. It's not the intellect. Okay. I mean, even, even if you're like the surfing and climbing thing is like, I'm going to hurl this body around and I'm going to move to California and I'm going to be other places. And then at one point I said, Oh, holy cow, how old am I? And if I do not want to go to my grave with regrets and with the curiosity of what writing is like, I need to get serious. I can't just scratch shit in my notebook and, and call it enough. When, when I, when I, your book starts with your dad dying Yes. and you processing that. And honestly, I just thought you were like a normal woman <laughs> with a normal dad, you know, and your mom somewhere like she's in the next room. And, and, and then when I read the impact that your dad's death had on you, I mean, it sends you off on this trip around the world. And, and, you know, I was like, wow, this is kind of the man in your life at that point. Like, yeah, this is, yeah. this is a big person. Like everybody's parents are big to them, but I think like, it would seem like your dad might've loomed even larger. So at some point you come back to take care of your dying dad at his house. Yeah. 
um, on his, not, not on his terms, but like you show up and, and your sister shows up a little bit too. Yeah. My sister had two toddlers and totally not on my terms, totally on his terms. Right. I mean, he, he was, he was not one to, to allow for anyone else having terms. And so we had some tough times. He did not want me there. He was very angry at me for taking a leave of absence. And I just kind of shrugged and said, who else is going to do this? Like somebody has to be here. And it just at the moment makes sense for me to be here. So, and so we, we made it through those three months and it wasn't pretty and it wasn't easy. Um, and there were times where I left and said, forget this, you're not worth it. I'm going back to the city. And then I'd come back 24 hours later and relieve my exhausted sister. And, uh, and so we got him, we got him through. I'm thinking about you. And then I'm thinking about this book and the book is artful in this sense, in that your dad's death clearly like was a jumping off point for you. Like, oh snap, there's this big issue and how people die and how it all works and what it all means. And you, but like the book is not like this exhaustive memoir of you and your dad and your sister. And you know, the, like you, you never get any of that. Yeah. Um, would it have been the same? Would this book have come about if, say, my father hadn't married a paranoid schizophrenic woman? Um, if I hadn't been born in Lancaster? If I hadn't spent so much time with my Mennonite parents, grandparents? I don't know. Um, but, but here it is. And so your dad dies, and not in the way that you would have wanted or he would have wanted. Yeah. And, and, and I, I was angry. I was angry that I could could have made it through that many years and that my society did not prepare me for what absence meant, that I did not know that his body would fall apart in front of my eyes. I was really um, angry that my aunts and uncles, that my hospice, our hospice um, workers, that I was completely unprepared. After your dad's death, like, you just don't, like, you exposed yourself to a lot of death. Yeah. I had to go hurt. I had to go see what it looked like over and um, over again. Yeah, exactly. As a hospice person, as a hospice person. But I even think some of my traveling, my need to just go spend as much time in, um, undeveloped, underdeveloped, neglected, abused countries, uh, was really helpful. You know, like, um, Eastern Russia, um, it's like, a third world country, not the, not the most appropriate term. I think that's, um, out of use these days, but, um, I spent 10 months in Africa, um, from Egypt to South Africa. And that gave me the space to see myself, um, with at least a, a, a bit more perspective. So you, do you feel like that the reason, like when you, the anger that you had, it, it, it seems like your sort of assessment is our medical care system, our culture, our whole way of dealing with end of life and death stuff is totally fucked up. Yeah. And it doesn't, it, it just, it, it, it regularly strips people of their dignity, of their agency. It regularly screws with people's everything. And yes. And is your sense that the main reason for that is because somehow we've conspired to hide death from ourselves. And because we don't actually see it enough, we misunderstand it 
and misread and mis and, and mishandle it? I think that's part of it. We don't have the death experience. You know that wonderful Jessica Mitford book, um, American Way of Dying, um, where she takes down the funeral industry and she basically says, we are uh, at a disadvantage when arranging our loved one's funerals because we really only ever do it once. We're, we're like uneducated consumers. And I think dying, the dying process, negotiating those last weeks and months is sort of the same thing. We don't know what it looks like. We don't know how to we need go about it. Yeah. We need the equivalent of a wedding planner. We need a, right, a death right. planner. But, well, they're called death doulas and they do exist and they charge ridiculous amounts of money. And are they, are they just another export? Cause I, I feel like at the end of life, just everybody lines up to exploit you. Um, are, are they just <laughs> another exploitative thing or is there like an actual good thing there? Yeah. I'm kind of critical of it. I mean, first of all, you've got to have money to hire a doula. Some will do it on a voluntary basis, but it's become a business and you know, not there's a criticism of hospice programs that are also for profit. We somehow think that, um, kidney or organ donation and hospice are the only programs in medicine that should be altruistic. Um, uh, everything else is monetized, right? But, uh, I, I also think that the monetization of this specialty solely focused on people with money when they're not the people that need it the most, you know, we're talking about shut-ins, um, people of color that have never had healthcare or never had access to social services or don't even have an address. You know this better than I do. Yeah. No, um, I've spent a so, lot of time with really poor people dying and yeah, it ain't pretty. It's uh, not pretty. But and, I also found that like, that was where I was useful. Like with my, you know, with my cool education and my white voice on the phone, like I could get stuff done for people um, exactly. And, and I can protect people from certain kinds of exploitation a lot more easily. I tell this story in the book about Marshall in an all HIV facility on the Lower East Side. Oh, is this when the preacher in purple comes in? Yes. He was, it was super. These people gave him so much happiness at the end, um, as much as he could have. But he was in pain and no one understood that he was in pain or acknowledged the fact that it mattered. And I could drag people to his bedside and say, see this, this is not acceptable because I was white, because I represented the hospice organization, because I could point it out. And that's heartbreaking. Yeah. That's and, really, and, and I, fr yeah frankly, because it, you're resilient. Well, I mean, all he needed was someone to say, you are doubled over. We are going to try something else. Yeah. Yeah. Literally doubled over. I did not understand that. So, so, I mean, that's the thing. Like, so you got all this exposure and in a sense, I guess maybe what is it that you feel like people don't know that they need to know about the way we as a society are handling death? Like what's, what's the big takeaway for you that you're Oh like, my God. The things that we think matter, it's totally fucked up. <laughs> we, we, the things that really matter we have no idea and until you are with someone and all they want is the most mundane thing. They're slowly dying. You see their legs swelling up with angina or whatever, and they just want to call their sister or they, they just want me to read the newspaper to them because that's their daily ritual. What is comforting can be the smallest, most mundane thing. 
it is not the great, you need to sit here and um, consider your regrets and make peace with all the estranged people in your life. And, you know, kind of the ethos, the idea um, that, that surrounds hospice from Cicely Saunders, the founder on down, is that there is a better way to die and this is it. And my like the one size fits all like, yeah, exactly. Let me tell you how you want to die. Right. And you and I both know that at this moment, at, at this period in time, um, in the United States, that tends to be inflected with an American version of Eastern religions. That's, um, you know, completely commodified and yogified and <laughs> Buddhified. And, um, and, and that, that just isn't what works for everyone. Does it work for anyone? Sure but it also has particular class and race values. So it's like, it's the way middle-class people like to die. Middle, upper, upper middle-class, middle class, I think. Yeah. Thoughtful, well-read people. Thoughtful, well-read. Um, um, a lot of gobbledygook language that doesn't mean very much to me that I have a hard time following. Like, you know, I need to center myself and find meaning in this mindfulness. Um, yeah, that sort of stuff. It's and funny, it's funny. It's funny. when I was reading your book, there was this one place where, um, you talk about this person who's got all this pain and the doctors are at that foot of the bed and they're talking about like morphine, maybe more, well, you know, it's addictive. Right. And right. I, I, don't, I think it was you that was like, he's dying. Like who cares? Yeah. No, like, that's exactly the scene that I was just going to, that I was talking about with Marshall, like the, the preachers come in and, and, you know, here he is doubled over and they're like, well, you know, methadone is really addictive and it's in an all HIV facility. You know, okay, you, can you, I just tell you, I did the same thing in it in reverse. Like, I, I had this friend and like, and we're talking like streeter than street dude, this guy, he was just ghetto, pure ghetto. And he had stage four lung cancer after having smoked like everything. And so he's dying for at first he's in the hospital. And then we managed to get him home and I come over to his and they give him all the stuff he's supposed to do. And I come over to his house one day and he's sitting there with this buddy of ours, um, another street dude, and they're smoking. <laughs> and I come in and I go like, Victor, what are you doing? They told you not to smoke. What are you, what are you doing? And I, you know, and looking back, I'm just like, what the, what was I thinking? Yeah. We do it all the time. The morality of health, good behavior. If you just do the right thing, you will live long. If you just eat the right expensive food. If you just do these brain exercises, if you just, um, get up every morning and go for a 20 minute walk, um, as though our health depends on our own actions. And that is a lie well, and also, for so many of us. That is a lie. It, that is a lie for many of us. But the other thing is like, as if lengthening your days is the <laughs> only priority sure. in life. <laughs> like I can like, you know, my, I remember my father-in-law saying like, look, you can lengthen my days by taking away the ice cream. <laughs> He's like, I would rather have fewer days with ice cream. Yeah. Um, and he was just like, look, there's more to life than just the maximum amount of time. Right. Well, I think, I think there are different ways of doing that. Right. But people say that about smoking, right? Like, um, I would rather die young than give up this great pleasure. And that's, that's, that's a lie to oneself about addiction. But that aside, I completely agree. At if you end, have in the last month, it's a little different equation. Exactly. In the last months, in the last days, it's definitely a different equation. We're talking about pain and suffering. However, you want to qualify, define those two. 
Um, and that's a whole other, that's a whole other world. We shame those who don't want to add just one more day. We shame them for their pain. We shame them for wanting to, for, for finding that there are some things worse than death for not making the decisions that we want them to make for not fighting hard enough. And why do you think we do that? There are so many reasons. I think we have created a medical culture that fosters that. I think there are religious reasons. I think we have kind of a, um, a paper morality when it comes to values in the end days. Um, but I think we also have enormous systemic uh, structures. We have enormous systems that are dedicated to getting the most out of bodies at the end as possible. Um, so I think it's, it's multifaceted, this challenge. It is not just the emotion. I'm, I'm afraid of dying. You know, and it's an innate human quality. I, there are other periods in history where people weren't necessarily afraid of dying. They wanted to live, but it wasn't the greatest, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't the taboo do not discuss. Um, and so or the idea that death is the worst thing that could happen to you. There are worse right. things that could happen to you. Oh, sure. Surely, surely. Um, and so, and, and so there are, there have been other periods in history where we weren't where we are now in this sort of, I can't discuss it. And science is going to solve all my problems. It's going to cure cancer. It's going to put us on the moon. I mean, we're still in that post moon legacy the past 50 years, you know, 50 years ago, 50 and sixties, all of this new technology, like feeding tubes and respirators and defibrillators, all that came about in the early sixties. And it was still that period of time where we are going to cure mortality. It's, and yeah. we, we forgot that, you know, oh, we haven't done this yet. I, I don't think my brain is capable. Like, if you can make all of me finite, including my ability to handle grief, um, maybe. But, like, I, I can only, like, at the end of their lives, a lot of the people that you're with, that you were with, I'm sure, I, a lot of the people that I was with, they were like, I'm ready. I've oh, had, yeah. I've had, this was a great meal, but I have had enough. Mm-hmm. But I think it also kind of essentializes uh, what we're here for. Like if you acknowledge you were getting to this at the, at, at, you were getting at this at the beginning, Barton, where if you acknowledge that, you know, I, I don't, I don't have a whole lot of these days. They, they come with a number and why shouldn't I try something? Why shouldn't I, you know, live? Why shouldn't I consider my neighbor? Do you, uh, I, I, no. do you want to quote that? I, I like, if, if you got me during your research, I would have given you Robert Ingersoll, um, who is known as the great agnostic. He was like the world's best orator in the 1890s. And he was a popularizer of Darwin. But Ingersoll's quote on this that I love is he says, look, he said, the idea of immortality was not born of any creed or any religion. It was born of human affection. Mm. It's because we love it and it will continue to ebb and flow beneath the mists and clouds of doubt and darkness as long as love kisses the lips of death. But then he says this, and yet there is one thing of which I am certain, and that is that if we could live forever here, we would care nothing for each other. Mm -hmm. The fact that we must die, the fact that the feast must end, Mm -hmm. brings our souls together and treads the weeds out from the paths between our hearts. Are you reciting that or do you have it in front of you? I, I, I actually have that in my head. When you're a secular humanist chaplain, 
a lot of people that are leaving Christianity, the biggest thing they tell you is I'm scared to die. Mm -hmm. And so they, you know, so like I quote this thing all the time. It's beautiful because then the value is not the number of days or the salary or the achievements or any of that, but the relationships that we have made. And we have an epidemic of lonely elders um, from whatever race or class you want to point out. Um, a lot of lonely people that didn't necessarily get that message. And, and I'm starting to hear from a lot of those lonely people. I mean, some of those lonely people will end up listening to this podcast and they write to me and say, I'm really afraid of dying. And, and, and they're not just afraid of the experience of dying. The idea of non-existence terrifies them. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how, for how many people it is the fear of non-existence that causes us to say to people, don't, you know, fight the good fight. Like, you know, don't go gentle into that good night. Like there's this, there's a sense in which death is always perceived as evil and the enemy. And I think a lot of it is people are really afraid. Like, and, and I, did you find anything while you were out there, while you were doing this research, have you found anything that comforts people in, 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 in the, in the shadow of non-existence? Yeah. I think there's something about, um, precious, um, precious lives, precious because, um, they are unique and they, um, they exist with an end sort of when I, um, when I was smoking far too much weed and surfing a lot and living in California, I had a boyfriend who once said to me, you know, when I die, all this goes with me. And I thought, wait, oh, his view of the world, his art of living is unique and incredibly precious and worth taking note of and appreciating. And that uniqueness, that preciousness of the art of living, what do we get to do with this? What relationships um, do we form? The people we surround ourselves with, the things that we do or don't try. But what do you say to somebody? Like, I just got a letter yesterday from a woman who's 75 years old. She's in bad health. She's dying. And she says, I'm scared. Like, I can't say to her, go surf. Go. No, it's okay to be scared. Go be well, artful. First of all, there's, there's nothing the matter with being scared. But look back at what you have seen. Look back at the people you have known. And I'm not saying some grandiose Amelia Earhart flew the country. You know, I'm, I'm not saying the little things are the beautiful things. And you think, the... do you think everybody like, like, cause I, I wrote to her basically that I sent her the Ingersoll quote, right? Mm -hmm. And she wrote back to me and she said, thanks. I appreciate your sending that to me. Perhaps my problem is that I don't feel loved. Yeah. And I'm like, what, like, she doesn't feel like when she looks back, she doesn't feel maybe anyone or enough people that really love her. I don't, I don't know, know what to do with that. I don't know that being loved is the, is the, she knows what it's like to love. And I don't, I mean, this is your realm much more than mine, but I think the more gratifying emotion for a lot of the people that I encountered, it was not being surrounded by loved ones. That's, that's our own fear of loneliness or whatever. It's loving the things that they loved. And it could be, it, again, like it the could music be, that they loved or absolutely. the food that they loved. Or absolutely. That, that whatever it was in that experience that fired up the synapses, um, just picking up your newspaper every morning before 830. Just that simple. 
the, the, the coffee maker that you used for 20 years. Those things can be a passion, but it's, it's mostly just the loving, um, loving the people around them, loving that great night that we sat on the porch and drank red wine or whatever. Those experiences are what's, um, what are most prominent to people, I think. A lot of people, and this is an interesting phenomenon, right? If we're thinking about um, what is more important to us as we're dying, loving or being loved, um, I would love to see more studies about this. But um, I did not leave my father's side for three months, and we ended up having to take him to this hospice facility. And I haven't slept for like three days, and we're there, and the nurses say, go pick up some food, bring it back here. And just, you just need to walk away. And as soon as my sister and I walk away, my dad dies. And I'm like, wait a minute. I, I was hanging out for this. <laughs> you know, this is kind of, this is kind of what I was here for. And you know, if you talk to people happens all the time, as soon as the family member, the great watcher steps away, it's as though that loved one, that person being watched gets a moment to not have to worry about the pain that dying will cause others. It's that just needing to be alone. You don't, you don't die with other people. You die on your own. And so I wonder if that maybe has something to do with, is it the loving or the being loved that is most important to us? No, that's, that's, that's so deep to me. That's so deep. Cause like, I think a lot of times I mean, that's the thing. Like I was yelling at this girl this morning and I know she was expecting sympathy um, or understanding or, Oh, sweetie, I'm so sorry. And I'm mm -hmm. just like, you know, like get off your ass and yeah. get busy living. And I think in some ways, like when somebody's like in their last week or month of death, I think a lot of times people are afraid to just say to them like, Hey, love something, remember something you love, focus on loving. Like we we're always sort of like, I love you. All the families here. We all love you. Sharon's this person with love, which may end up feeling like a burden. Like, yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, and in a sense, in a sense, maybe the good chaplain would say to the person, Hey, you need to send out some love. You need, you need to focus on some things and go like, that's beautiful. I like that. You I, loved that. Yeah. I loved Remember that, that feeling? Yeah. You loved that. Yeah. And, and, and it could, it, it, again, it doesn't have to be grandiose things. Right. The irony for me, of course, is, is that I'm around a lot of religious people who tell me that their joy for heaven or their hope is what, um, is what gets them through. It's what helps them in these times and, and grief and all this death stuff. And my experience with a lot of Christians at the end of their lives is, is that, ostensibly they shouldn't be bothered by death at all if they really believe that there's this supernatural reality waiting for them that's better than anything and it doesn't seem to play out that way and, and in fact the, the the catholic church's obsession with life and preserving it at all costs the terry Schiavo stuff mm -hmm. makes no sense if in fact all they're doing is like preventing terry Schiavo from going on into a better reality and so right. there's some weirdness to the church's obsession with preserving earthly life when it would almost make more sense if atheists and agnostic people were the ones obsessed with preserving this life at all cost. Right. And there's a lot of commentary out there. If you look like why, why do born again Christians who look forward to meeting their maker, um, say do everything. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think it's a number of different things and it's not easy to make simple. 
my patient, Marshall, who became saved two weeks before he died, that was a real comfort to him. So I do think that faith is a comfort to many. Um, and I don't know if our rational understanding of the emotions that come out match up. I think the Catholic Church, for instance, is more interested in control. And, you know, they look at suffering in a way different than maybe some of us do. Um, and they have huge influence on our healthcare delivery system, managing, you know. Yeah, what did you say the Catholic Church controls how, what percentage of the beds? One-sixth of all hospital beds in the country, four of the top 10 HMOs, and and, and on top of that, thousands and thousands of long-term and uh, elder care facilities. I mean, it's, they're huge. They're huge. They're huge. And it's not just soft power. It's hard power. It is hardwired into our medicine. Um, and so they're invested in, in maintaining a particular kind of control. Um, and I mean that in all senses, the word invest. Um, but I also, but so, so whatever works for a patient who's dying, it's totally fine with me. I don't need to be right. They don't need to be right. They just need to be comfortable. And I think do everything is hard to separate from the medical culture, from the legal um, structure around healthcare, from um, just social factors and the pressure from family, and um, even say ideas of masculinity or whatever. We see this among a lot of older men. I'm going to beat this. I'm going to, you know, all this um, battle language that yeah. surrounds fighting an illness. Um, so I think it's, it's so easy to say that this is what religion is doing. And that is a, an incredibly simple definition of religion. And we use it all the time. And I think we use it very wrongly. And then we end up with these ham handed, um, understandings of, of particular dynamics. Um, yeah. Cause I mean, even, even, I mean, you, you don't even, you didn't even stop with faith. You were like, the, the whole idea of hope, like hope can be a really good thing, but hope can be a really bad thing in some of these situations. And there are a lot of people with crazy pie in the sky hopes that do not come from a particular kind of religion. I mean, the, it, it can be their culture. Uh, it can be their own um, political or socioeconomic class. I mean, it gets really messy when you start cross-sectioning that with, say, Protestantism or I don't know, Pentecostalism. Um, and I, I think we, we just don't know. And actually it might not matter. Well, I, I mean, the times when I've seen it matter are when I see somebody make really bad decisions based on an irrational hope, you know, right. And, right. Or, or like what I often see are people that are so excited about like, and this isn't right at the deathbed. This is like, you know, 20 years before that, when people are living their lives in a way they're making sacrifices, they're doing things because they're sure they'll be rewarded on the other side. And sometimes I go like, wow, that hope is causing this person to postpone right. spending time with the people that they love. Um, and they're, post and, and you know, and they're never going like, there, there is nothing on the other side, probably. And that's, that a bad, also, that's a bad decision. But that they're also getting something out of it. And it's not just that promise of, of what they get on the other side. I don't think, um, I, I think, um, women who perform a kind of martyrdom for their 
of family members nearby and extended. And I see this a lot, right? And it's, we're kind of, we're kind of hardwired for that. Um, I'm, I'm joking by saying hardwired, but I do think that we are, women are particularly acculturated to get satisfaction out of self-sacrifice, out of labor, out of having the meal on the table, out of spending all your money on your kid's shoes, out of just being there all the time. And you're saying, obviously you're getting something out of that. Yes. There's a reward to it as well. And I don't know that every time a woman picks up the phone at three in the morning and it's her junky brother calling and saying, honey, I need 50 bucks. I don't think she's saying, oh, okay, I'll give it to him because God will reward me in heaven. I think it's much more nuanced and complicated than that. I'll give you that. At the end of her life, um, there's this one older woman, wealthy woman whose life is shutting down and you end up like bringing her marijuana. <laughs> it doesn't sound like you got high with her. It sounds like no, you, I didn't. Got, you I'm got just, her high. It was her first time getting stoned. There was no way I was going to smoke with her. <laughs> I, I, th- have you been following all this, all this stuff about psychedelics and yeah, all, the ther- yeah. all the, all the things they're learning about the therapeutic properties of psychedelics and the way that they release people from guilt and sometimes addictions and other things. The way that we ascribe value or horror to substances, um, is always somewhat arbitrary and completely baffling. And so how one drug can be, uh, vilified and, and another not is, you know, that's, that's, um, it's in many cases, political or sure. economic or so it makes perfect sense to me that if you take someone down and give them, I don't know, a good old dose of ayahuasca and hold them still for a while and let them puke and, and do what they need to do. It is quite possible when you are that destabilized, that's the wrong word. Um, when you, can I use in, uninhibited? No, because that has when, 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 you're that, when you're that plastic, when you're, when, when all of a sudden, like there's a fluidity to the way that you like, that's what they're saying is like, it's, yeah. it's almost like you get a baby brain again. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I don't know the long range effects for any of this, but d- I think drugs are great. Why not try to look at things from another perspective? Pain, for instance, we don't even know if pain is physical or mental. Pain is really complicated and we don't know how to address it or deal with it basically because we've been so busy pursuing cures for diseases that we've forgot to pay attention to the pain aspect. And so why not see what the world looks like from a completely different perspective? Drugs can do that for us. Here's the thing. Like I'm terrified of drugs, you know, cause I grew up the way I grew up and right. I didn't try marijuana until I was, you know, 49 years old, but you didn't inhale. No, <laughs> I did. And it was like the singularly wild and amazing experience for me because it was the first time I'd ever like intentionally allowed my, my brain to kind of be altered. Right. And, altered state. Yeah. You know, like it was really good for me, but I'm still terrified of psychedelics. I'm, I'm terrified of like those things, even though I'm seeing lots of good things happen with them. And some of the students I work with have had really good experiences with them. Um, not that I endorsed, but that I, w- I, I was interested in. And so it was, re- it's, it's really, but like, I'm thinking like, yeah, but when I get a little bit older and I've got not like, cause, cause I'm worried about the long-term effects. And I go like, what about when I'm 70? It feels to me like that's the best time to start using psychedelics. We are also different 
if you are afraid of drugs, you should stay away from them. It makes perfect sense. Um, if, if you do wish to try them out of curiosity, I don't know. I like the philosophy of running toward the things you're afraid of, but we can't do that with everything. Some people, that is, people drugs, like you that are going to get Donald Trump elected. Oh wait, whoa! That running, was running towards the thing you're afraid of. That's what I'm worried. Oh about no, right that's now. a different kind of thing. So okay, okay. But I think we should try everything we can, and it will work for some, and it won't work for others. But that doesn't invalidate the 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 research. But have you seen anybody using psychedelics with really old people, like just to ease their death? No. I think there are studies taking place right now. I just saw a documentary, and there are a number of different shows on the serious media channels. Uh, but um, baby boomers are experimenting with some of this. I just don't know. I just think they should. I, uh, sure, we all should. But I, <laughs> it, it depends. Why would I not want to know what this is like? You know, I, I have so many people say this with a capital T, capital H, capital I, capital S. Like they have got the answer to the end of life problem. And maybe I, I am just a nerd <laughs> to all of that, but I do think let's, let's try it. Why not? Maybe it'll work for some people. Yeah. And I guess that's, I mean, that seems to me to be what you figured out most of all is that what works is an individual thing and it has to do with a person's culture and their family and their background and their individual psyche. And, you know, the, the book is called the good death and, you know, you sort of go like, yeah, maybe we need to be see seeking a good death. Like, yeah which will be, look different for different people. Yeah. And I feel very seriously that we need to build a better system that allows for that flexibility, that allows for all those possibilities and, and stop moralizing, stop saying, you don't know, you're a bad person for using marijuana to be more comfortable. Yeah. Yeah. I, I don't know. I, I'm sure people go, thank you for your book. Or like that book really, like it's, I, I find it so interesting and helpful and stuff. Like, and I do, I thank you for the book, but like, honestly, like just as a human being, like, I really want to thank you for the work, like for mm -hmm. taking the time to think about it and to spend time with all those people and to like become kind of expert in this weird thing that mm -hmm. we need more experts. Don't we? It's true. Yeah. And, and, Thanks. and yeah, and, and, we're, and we're done, but like, it is really weird to me that you grew up in Lancaster County, <laughs> you know, an hour from my home and you know, you grew up so differently than I did. Oh my God. You're Anthony Campolo's son. I know. That is crazy. That is crazy. Isn't that, and, like, and like he spoke at something you were at, right? Oh, like multiple times creation festival or something. Yeah. 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 Oh gosh. Yeah. yeah. I really like, I think you're doing really important stuff. Thank you so much. Well, it sounds like you are as well. I'm trying. Um, and all this time of yours. Thank you so much. I'll talk to you soon. Thank you. All right. Hey, so that was my conversation with Ann Newman. I hope you liked it. We had a great time doing it. If you want to hear the whole deal, you want to hear the whole two hours, just send me an email and I'll send it to you. As a matter of fact, send me an email anyway. Like if you're listening, if this is meaning anything to you, if you're, if you're in any way encouraged or inspired, drop me an email and let me know because I got to tell you, I'm getting all these amazing emails and it is exciting. And I, I think I'm going to do a bonus episode where I just read you know, anonymous excerpts from letters because I feel like there's a community growing here. Um, but I want to connect everybody to everybody else. And so we're going to, we're going to have to be, do some creative thinking about creating some kind of a forum where people that are digging on this approach to life and this way of kind of pursuing goodness without God, we, we got to find a way to connect everybody, um, at least virtually. But in the meantime, yeah, yeah I would love to hear from you and, uh, and thanks.
you know, thanks for being here. Thanks for being a part of this. What I often say to people when I'm leaving a conversation like this is I just want to say to them, like, stay wonderful. Stay full of wonder because there is so much good to see out there once you open your eyes to it. So go see some, and we'll see you back here same time next time. Rock on. For more information about the work of Bart Campolo, please visit bartcampolo.org.